0: The energy transition is complex, and it can be hard to know where to turn for information. In 2022, we're closer than ever to a cleaner future, but how do we get there? I'm Dr. Liz Dennett, and you're listening to Horizons. The world's growing need for sustainable energy will change the geography of oil and gas. Over 90% of current oil and gas production comes from around 40 of what we call traditional super basins. These traditional superbasins are simply places with abundant oil and gas resources. As we move towards the 2030s and the decarbonization of the energy industry, the world must focus on renewables co-located with both clean energy and carbon capture and storage, or CCS. These are what we'll label the energy superbasins of the future. These energy superbasins will combine plentiful clean energy, legacy oil and gas, and hub-scale carbon utilization and storage. On the podcast today, we're going to look at the traditional superbasins, where they are, why the world's oil and gas supply is concentrated there, and how companies can avoid being left behind when the transition from traditional to energy superbasins arrives in the coming decades. So with that, let's go ahead and jump right into this. Joining us today on the podcast is Dr. Andrew Lathan, Vice President of Energy Research at Wood Mackenzie. Andrew has over 30 years experience assisting majors and independence in the development of their energy strategies. He currently leads Wood Mackenzie subsurface research content across all aspects of the upstream oil and gas and emerging geo-industry industries. Andrew previously led the exploration strategy offering within the upstream consulting business. Later as Ranger focused on West Africa, he became project geologist for Angola. Andrew has been with the Wood Mackenzie energy team ever since 1995. Andy, thank you so much for joining
1: us today. It's my very great pleasure, Liz. Happy to join you.
0: I am a big fan of the bottom line up front. What is one thing that you think everyone should know about energy super basins?
1: Well, I think the one thing you need to know is that not everywhere that is a traditional super basin, that is, you know, where the oil and gas is coming from is gonna make it to become an energy super basin. So the industry is pretty concentrated already. It's gonna become more concentrated as it migrates to this kind of subset of the big basins that we have today.
0: Before we dive into this too much, Andy, welcome to your very first Horizons podcast. I'm really pleased and it was really fun to read the Horizons report. It's so great to have you with us. Can you just give us a brief history of your career and your work with Woodmac?
1: Uh, certainly can, yeah. So I guess I'm a petroleum geologist by background. I've, I've about 30 plus years now in the industry. Um, the first six, seven of those, I was drilling exploration wells for a Canadian EMP. Um, I joined Woodmac in the mid-90s, and I, I've done a, a string of different upstream research uh, and consulting roles over, over the years. And, and latterly, I've, I've been um, getting more and more into broader subsurface content themes, A lot of, a lot of that being you know still in the in the exploration space and in the um, yeah. advantage resources space, but it's also more and more getting into some of these new what we call geo energies as well so geothermal maybe hydrogen storage carbon sequestration et cetera et cetera really interesting part of the industry I have to say
0: I have to confess I'm so excited to talk about this topic I've done a little bit in my career with basins and with super basins, but I'm really excited to unpack what exactly an energy super basin is. So for all the listeners out there, um, you may not be aware, but there's two geologists on the podcast today. <laughs> so enjoy listening at your own risk. I'm I'm actually a geologist too. Both my bachelor's, master's, and PhD are in geology, specifically astrobiology. But I did some time at Hess doing some exploration work, uh, specifically GOM, Guyana, and it's it's refreshing, although I shouldn't claim to be a geologist because I, if we go too far beyond general sequence stratigraphy, I'll probably be completely out of my element.
1: Liz, I suspect your geoscience is a lot more up-to-date than mine. I, I do all the time claim to be a geologist, but uh, <laughs> anybody that probes too closely may, may, may come to a different view
0: my all-time favorite is if you're hanging out with uh, people who know you're a geologist and they bring you rocks and they're like, what kind of rock is this? And there's either a really straightforward answer, like it's a dis- igneous rock, it's a sedimentary rock, or a really, really complex uh, one yeah, where you start exactly. to dissect minerals and they're like, okay, I just want to know if it was a cool rock or not. <laughs> anyway, I digress. Um, so going into traditional super basins, let's just provide some background on those. Almost... 75% of the world's oil and gas resources are in just 10 geological basins, and they hold more than 100 billion barrels of oil equivalent. Where are they, and why is the energy supply so concentrated?
1: Uh, well, I, I must admit, I was surprised by that, that degree of concentration. Um, you know, because there are, it depends what you call a basin, but there's seven, eight, nine hundred eight, 900 basins out there in the world. Um, and to find that three quarters of the oil and gas resources in just 10 of them, um, was, was a bit of a learning for me. I mean, I, you, you kind of know that the Middle East is big and, the, and two or three of the basins are there. And you know that uh, the U.S. has got a lot of oil and gas as well and there are two or three of the basins that are there. Um, and there's a couple in Russia, Volga, Euros, Western Siberia are, are in the yeah. top 10. There's Venezuela. Where am I missing? Nigeria, the Niger Delta is a big one. Um, and, and yeah, it, you know that, that's your list. Uh, oh, Western Canada, I should add, is, is, is another one. And yeah, those places are, are, are spectacularly... Well endowed in terms of oil and gas resource. And to, to I guess to get into the geology, because I think the reason that they're so important, you know, fundamentally it's it's the rocks. They are all going to have, they must have world-class source rocks. Um they need to have a, a pretty special regional seal or multiple regional seals mm-hmm. to keep all of the, the hydrocarbons that have been generated in the basin, you know, to keep it there to be found. Um, and, and actually the last thing I would say, and it's a really simple thing is they're all quite big, you know, I mean, <laughs> you, we, we, if you double the size of a base and you've got twice as much space to put oil and gas in and, and, you know, all of these top 10 are, are quite big.
0: So what I'm hearing is that it all comes back to the rocks and the geology first. I, I love that.
1: It 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 does, but actually there's a bit more to it than that. And, and, um, I would be remiss as a wood not, not to say that there's a bit of above ground and a bit of a commercial aspect to this as well, because, you know, we're talking about an industry that's been around for well over 100 years now. And pretty much all of that history, you know, most of the operators have been trying to keep their cost down. You know, it's a commodity. You know, um, the companies that have the lowest cost of supply generally win out. Um, and there are economies of scale, right? So if, you, if you've got big fields and lots of them nearby in a big basin, those economies of scale work for you. You know, somebody else in, in a smaller basin nearby is, is going to struggle to keep up.
0: That is very fair. And that's something we've talked about on the podcast previously, too, when it comes to new energy technologies and emerging is that one of the biggest challenges that always emerges is the supply chain and the logistics.
1: Uh, absolutely. And, and, you know, we don't hear so much about it now. But if, if we were having a chat about big upstream themes maybe 10, 15 years ago, um, I remember an awful lot of discussion at that point about the Arctic, and, you know, it was it was seen as, you know, the border Arctic. So that's Siberia. It's Greenland. It's, you know, off Canada, it's off Alaska um, and uh, and Norway. And, uh, you know, the rocks in a lot of those basins look pretty interesting. But the supply chain and the logistics and the cost environment up there, we now know is, is totally prohibitive or largely prohibitive. Right. So the Arctic never really happened and probably never will happen. Um, for most of the industry, for for the reason you just raised there, Liz.
0: Interesting, I suspect we're gonna come back to supply chain at some point. Um, I wanna shift gear a little bit, and you focus mostly on wind and solar, but are there other clean energy technologies that you think might be important here?
1: There could be, there's no doubt that when, because the question we asked of, of, of our colleagues on, on on the Wood Power and Renewables side was, you know, we, we, we need clean electricity um, for oil and gas operations to deal with scope one, two emissions, right? Because those emissions are, they're not trivial. Um, right now, 1, 1. 1.4 gigatons a year is, is, is scope one, two emissions from the oil and gas industry.
0: Can you just unpack for listeners, if they're not familiar with what scope one and two emissions are?
1: Broadly, it's everything to do with the, the production and supply of uh, the oil and gas to the consumer. So it's, it's both the operator and the operator supply chain. But it is not the burning of of the oil or gas, which is with the scope three emissions, um, which is a much bigger number, and we'll come on to talk about that a, a bit. Yeah. In, I, I'm sure. But the, the the relevance of this to clean electricity is that that is the best way for the industry to tackle its scope one two emissions. So, and. and that is the most immediate focus for a lot of the industry. They know they've got to clean up their own shop. They can't necessarily do much about demand, which would be the main way that you would, you would deal with the bigger problem of the scope three emissions. But you use clean electricity to electrify operations, to get rid of the emissions from your own activities. And yeah, you, you said wind and solar, and that, th- those are the main technologies in most of the basins we look at. There's one or two that are hydroelectric. So like Norway is is is, is hydroelectricity, ninety nine percent of Norway's electricity. And that is Ninety nine
0: percent? I
1: think it's as high as that. Yeah. Wow. It's 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 overwhelming you know, it's it's such a high yeah. proportion that nothing else really gets a look in. Um and, and Norway is really leading on on this electrification of offshore facilities and has some of the lowest uh, operational emissions of of any oil and gas basin that you might look for. So the question is why why aren't loads of other places going to go down the hydroelectricity route and, and it's really because most good opportunities to do hydro have already been done and you know it, it's really hard to, to add new ones you know the, the 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 consequences of creating a big new dam somewhere and flooding a valley that you haven't done a long time ago uh, are usually too onerous to, to contemplate so we're not expecting a lot of new hydro anywhere uh, and in fact even in Norway right, you know, right now it's been a bit dry in southern Norway and uh, they've they've got issues with electricity supply, and you know people are asking the question: Should we be using this electricity for the offshore? You know, should should we not keep it onshore where where domestic customers want it?
0: So wind, solar, hydroelectricity, and to your point earlier about these super basins being closer, having um, more interconnected supply chains, connecting these two pieces, then it I imagine it would be easier then to decrease scope one and two emissions if you're in a super basin.
1: A- absolutely. Um, but provided you're in one of, one of the super basins where clean electricity from all of these different technologies we've just been talking about is plentiful and, and, and affordable, and not all locations really tick those boxes. You know, if you're up in the Arctic, if you're somewhere where those technologies are not readily available for above ground reasons, and there are places where sanctions apply, or, or just there are supply chain challenges that stop that technology getting getting into the market, then you can't decarbonize. And, and, and your upstream supply will be uncompetitive compared to others.
0: I had never thought about that. That is absolutely fascinating. <laughs> so thinking about the genesis of these super basins, how often does exploration open up one of these new super basins?
1: Um, it's a really interesting question, actually. It's, because if, I, I've, you know, I've been looking one shape or form at the exploration industry for, for what, I don't know, 30 years or more. And pretty much at any point in 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 those three decades, the kind of prevailing view from at least half of the people who were, who were involved was, we're not going to find any big anymore. You know, all the big stuff has already been found. I remember my first boss, exploration manager boss, back in the early nineties, sort of bemoaning to me that there's no good prospects left anymore, Andy. It's all <laughs> been it's all been done, and yeah. Um, yeah, kind of he was near the end of his career. But you know, at that time, the whole of the deep water is, was yet you know just about to break, right? It was just about to happen, yeah. Um, and some of it on the the very next block to the block we had, and and that sort of thinking prevails today, right? Most people you might speak to will say there's nothing big yet to be done. Now we we have drilled wells everywhere, left, right, and centre. But the reality is that every three to five years, somewhere, someone somewhere makes a really big play opening or usually a basin opening discovery. And we we all know the ones they found, right? The Santos Basin in Brazil, okay, that's 15 years ago now. Guiana Suriname, that's come in the last decade.
0: So I remember working up some of the really early prospects when I was a geologist at Hess and we didn't have very good well control. We would look at the seismic. And so it was trying to calibrate that when we had some of the early cores. This is an embarrassing story. I'm going to share it anyway. But I remember looking at one of the cores and I had to ask my mentor, like, what rock is this, this red hard stuff? I've never seen this before. And they pulled me aside and said, Liz, that's the resin they use to set the cores <laughs> because I'd never seen sand that was that high porosity okay, and permeability yeah. before. Yeah. But it's such a challenge because when, when you see the seismic and you're, you're brought up and you go through training, looking at the same types of seismic profiles, and you're looking at these legacy 2d lines, like either someone did something very bad on this seismic, and it's very messed up or we it's poorly calibrated, or there's something that's massive down here
1: well and and you know your example is is exactly the point really that that there are there are wells pretty much everywhere, but often they're quite old wells they're very widely spaced. The seismic data that's available is not the latest seismic um and it's poorly calibrated because there are a few wells. There are lots of basins uh that are still at that stage of their exploration around the world, and that's why I think every three three years or so, somewhere at the sort of low end of the super basin scale, gets gets discovered. You know, we we mentioned Guiana Suriname. We could have mentioned Mozambique. We could have mentioned mm-hmm. Mauritania Senegal, the Eastern Med gas play. Um, you know, it's across many basins, so it doesn't quite qualify as one basin, but it's big. But I, what I would say is that these tend to be 10, 20, 30 billion barrels of oil equivalent scale. Not an awful lot bigger than that. So they're not going to be up in the top 10. They're going to be in the top 40. Um, And right now, the one that looks like it's bubbling under is the Orange Basin, which is half in Namibia and half in in South Africa. First discoveries came, first big discoveries came there this year. But it looks like it's got the running room to be another super basin. we're, We're certainly watching it pretty closely.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's interesting too, reflecting on the life cycle of the geology end to end discovery and exploration process too. Because one thing that I didn't realize until I got into it is that there's a lot of optimism and hope in there, but also fundamentally, you are dealing with unknown unknowns and unknowable unknowns. And as someone now no. whose career is spent, building data platforms, building data architectures and data engineering pipelines where we can pretty much know what our data is going to look like. We can leverage the cloud for resources at scale. It boggles my mind just how much uncertainty you have to deal with when making these decisions and how honed that gut intuition comes with it. And and you were speaking about one of your first engineering or geoscience managers who was like, "All the oil's been fined. You also find those one that have their one or two pet prospects that they'll bring from place to place or company to company and bring those seismic lines up that are like, this is going to be the next big thing. This is going to be the next big thing. And and that sense, I think both of humanity, but also just just raw optimism based purely on unknowable unknowns is something that is at such stark dichotomy with <laughs> a, such a, a numbers and analytics focused regime that can be hydrocarbon and energy oil and gas
1: yeah well i mean me in, in a lot of our analysis of exploration the stuff that matters is what we call the high impact um exploration i mean lots lots you know most wells are not high impact wells they're they're, they're kind of snuggle exploration close up to um, existing fields and they're very profitable because they're very quick but they're also very small um the stuff that moves the needle you know Typically comes with about a twenty percent success rate, something of that order of magnitude. So, if you know, you've got to get used to the idea that the other eighty percent are not successful, and you know that's not everybody's um, cup of tea, shall we say? You know, it's, it's it's you've got to be optimistic to be working on something that usually fails. Um, but but actually, I mean, just to bring this round to to the whole question of decarbonization and, and super basins, um, a, a, a key a key motive for for companies that are, that are still doing high impact exploration right now is that uh, new fields are often advantaged in terms of both their economics because you know you you've got modern facilities and the and, and the um the facilities are full because early in field life here at plateau production but also the emissions are low that the emissions intensity is lower um, kind of for the same reasons so, so companies are, are increasingly justifying drilling exploration wells because they're meeting these dual objectives that they have. They're, they're, they're meeting the, the standard economic objectives that they've always had, but they're also meeting these you know, relatively newer objectives of decarbonizing their emissions intensity. So they're, they're, they're saying we don't want anything new in the portfolio that isn't accretive to our emissions intensity. And you know that, and that's kind of the story of the super basins as well. You know, I, I want to I want to relatively pull back from the basins that are high emissions intensity, and I want to relatively invest in in the energy super basins where where it's better.
0: So we've talked a lot about super basins. We've gone on some great trip. I've gone on some great trips down memory lane. I actually do want to talk a little bit more about energy super basins. And specifically, um curious, what role does carbon capture and storage play in the plan to transform traditional basins into energy ones?
1: Well, yeah, and, and it's great you bring that up, Liz, actually, because we've talked a lot about the scope One, two emissions and, and electrification being a way to deal with that. But the elephant in the room is the scope three emissions. And a lot of companies now are setting net zero scope three targets. I think four of the seven majors have that by 2050, for example, Um, And you only get to a a net zero on scope three if you can um, either sequestrate or offset your emissions, your customer's emissions effectively at the scope three level. Um, And obviously, uh, CCS, carbon capture storage, is one of the biggest levers you can pull towards achieving that. So um, when we look at the... The CCS industry right now it's it's growing super fast, but from a small a small base. I think in you know we're we're tracking either existing or planned or kind of hypothetical projects, but still specific projects that folks are talking about. You know, collectively, adding up to about a gigaton per annum of capacity, um, with a lot of that coming on by 2030 or into the early 2030s. Um, and the bigger projects um, are largely concentrated where it is straightforward to capture the co2 because that's in most of the ccs industry that's the harder part of the task and it 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 pains me a little bit as a subsurface or geoscience person (laughs) to say that um and it is not you know it's not i don't want to trivialize the storage end of it because that's there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of complexity in all of those technologies that we still have to learn about um but that's you know can be maybe a quarter of the total costs. It's the capture and the transport to the storage location that is that is where a lot of the the um, the cost will come. Um, and this is an industry that like like a lot of these new technologies, the, the, the first question everybody asks is how are you going to pay for it? Um, how's it you know how are the economics going to work. Um it is it is challenged by cost. And and so you you, you when you're looking at where it's going to happen at the greater scale You've got to be looking at where that capture is most straightforward, and that has to happen at a hub scale where you have big emissions-heavy uh, industries that can give you that, that hub scale opportunity. And and those locations are relatively few and far between. You know, when you look at the 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 oil and gas basins around the world, some of them have big industrial hubs in them and some of them don't.
0: Yeah, it's and as you talked about earlier with the distributions of the basins around the world, it's... It's almost such a shame that geology didn't align with where industrialized places would be, you know, yeah. billions of years later, or at least hundreds of million years, millions of years in many cases.
1: Yeah, and and you know and and sort of geologists that sort have of stepped back and 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 sort of almost from a theoretical point of view wondered about what the the subsurface sequestration capacity of the world might be. They typically come up with very big numbers. You know, because you know, initially, folks were looking at depleted fields and, and, you know, wondering how much can we get into those depleted fields. And, you know, that's a relatively limited opportunity set compared to the saline aquifers that are you know, much more extensive um, and, and, and just much bigger and, and, and theoretically can, can take so much more um, CO2. They, can, they come with more uncertainty. They come with perhaps with a different set of risks, um, but they are present in, in most basins. But that won't be the constraint. The constraint will be where are the point sources of CO2, and and so when we're looking at the energy super basins, we apply a filter of where, where you get the. It's almost like a Venn, well, it is a Venn diagram. In fact, you know, where's big oil and gas? Where have you got plentiful cle- clean electricity to deal with the Scope One Two emissions? And where have you got the big CCS projects likely to, to get away to effectively, if you like, deal with the Scope Three emissions? Um, and top basins that that score well on all of those. Yeah. Um the Permian, the Gulf Coast in the lower forty eight in the US. Really right stands in our backyard, out. or at least uh, in yep. my backyard. Yeah. And you know, there's loads of talk there about um, you know, particularly around Houston, there's there's enormous CCS projects getting away there. The Middle East, um, certainly the parts where the IOCs are actively investing as you know, hand in hand with the NOCs. We can see all the all of the parts of the Venn diagram. Um Aligning very nicely, being co-located very nicely there as well. Um, the North Sea is perhaps a bit smaller than than those areas in terms of the upstream, but is really at, you know sort of breaking a, a lot of ground in terms of CCS progress. Um, and you know certainly on the Norwegian side, you've you've got those um, you know that hydroelectric clean le- clean electricity as well. Australia I think would be on the list. You know so the, the, there's certainly places that are a, a clearly Looking like the early winners in, in terms of the overall concept of energy superbase.
0: So, going back to energy basins, we define an energy basin as one that features three abundance, just like you were talking about. Um, so, abundant advantaged resources, plentiful low cost renewables, and hub scale CCS opportunities. What are some examples of these, and can they cope with the forecasted demand that we're facing?
1: Well that's that's the real question. So 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 the examples I you know I mentioned there would 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 be in in the the Gulf Coast and the Permian of the US, in the Middle East, in Australia, in the UK and the Norwegian sectors of the North Sea. Will those areas and some other ones that are, will, will be not far too far behind we hope, will they be able to meet oil and gas demand entirely? I for one doubt it. Um we've just published uh, our latest um base case outlook for the whole of of the energy markets out to 2050, energy transition outlook, as we call it. And that foresees oil and gas demand, even in 2050, being about 90% of today's levels, you know, peaks somewhere in the 2030s, and then sort of slowly comes down from that plateau. I don't think there is enough opportunity in the best of the energy super basins to fully meet that demand which which begs a really interesting question so what you know what are we going to do about that and you know can can the industry in, invest to to close the gap probably but it's a huge challenge
0: <laughs> interesting so how do you see traditional super basins mitigating global economic impacts to ensure that prices remain steady is this something you think they'll always manage to be able to do
1: um well so so i mean i guess Obviously, we've seen a lot of price volatility um, recently, and, you know, that's causing all sorts of pain for consumers. Um, And and, and yet it's not doing what it used to do in the past, which is triggering a wave of upstream investment. You know, I mean, the the classic cycle was prices would go down, investment would be curtailed, prices come back up. And, you know, immediately you'd kick in with the upstream piling back in and, you know, traditionally would almost over-invest and the cycle would repeat. This time, right, it looks like it's different. Not totally, but there's no doubt that investment is, is being constrained. And it's being constrained because lots of stakeholders um, are either worried about the pace of the energy transition or they're worried about demand for, for oil and gas in the, in the medium longer term, or they're, they're, they are um, making it difficult to invest in those sectors as a catalyst to, to accelerate the energy transition. Um, but of course, the challenge is if, if, those, if that gets out of line and if supply falls behind demand for too long, then we see these very high prices. So that's, the challenge is getting that into balance.
0: And going back to one of the statistics you mentioned earlier, almost 75% of the world's oil and gas resources are just in 10 geological basins. That, to me, still blows my mind. I didn't realize it was that much of a, a log normal distribution.
1: Yeah, and it, and it brings a lot of concentration risk, of course. And, and in fact, if you look at those 10 basins, you know, on the list is Venezuela. Um, that is not sitting pretty in terms of a, a location for, for becoming um, a, a true energy super basin of the future because you know, there's plenty of sun and wind in Venezuela, but there's very little access to the technologies to, to make the most of that. Also on the list is, are two Russian basins, and we really don't see those attracting, you know, doing much by way of, of, of moving to become energy super basins for, for obvious reasons, I guess. So, so the future looks even more concentrated than it does today. You know, we, we are really going to lean hard on, on the U.S. and on Mexico, uh, well, on, on the Middle East um, and, and, you know, a handful of the other places that, that uh, we we're already leaning very hard on. And so the challenge is: can we can we um, can we get more from those?
0: It'll yeah, be interesting so, to see if that's true. <clears throat> so, since we are leaning so heavily on those, what geopolitical impacts do you think we'll see if the traditional super basins in the Middle East fail to develop into energy super basins?
1: Well, so the, so the Middle East. I mean, it's it's obviously it's it's a whole region. There's 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 some complexity in there. I mean, we don't think. I mean, Iran obviously is pretty much off limits for a lot of these technologies. So I don't see Iran. Anytime soon, making that move, but I think it'd be, it would be very surprising if the other bits of the Middle East didn't achieve achieve the leap and become much cleaner sources of supply, true energy super basins. I think we expect that the IOC's, the international oil companies, will lead in a lot of these moves, but the national oil companies, which obviously dominate Middle Eastern supply, are likely to follow, and already we're seeing most of them. Um, basically looking to make the the same moves that they're setting the same targets or similar targets.
0: All right, so final question for you, what will the upstream industry look like in 2030 and beyond?
1: Well, you know what, that's that's the huge question. That's probably the question that actually got us thinking about these topics in the first place because you know, how how big is the upstream industry going to be in the twenty thirties and beyond is, is really kind of the first one. Now we at Woodmack we've just published an answer to that. Um, and the and the answer is slightly bigger than it is today, but starting to decline. And by twenty fifty it'll be about slightly smaller than it is today. Um, but I think the other thing is if 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 this analysis of energy super basins has taught us anything, is that it's gonna be even more concentrated in the best of those basins. You know, it's already concentrated, but not not all of the the, the current sources of supply work well when you take these new sustainability goals into mind. So we're going to see an industry that's a little bit bigger, but even more concentrated than it is today.
0: Well, thank you so much for this very, very insightful conversation today. Is there anyone you would like to give a special thank you to or shout out today?
1: Well, so I, I worked with this with lots of people across Wood Mackenzie, my two co-authors, Julie Wilson, and Brian Gaylord, Julie, um, very much on the upstream side, Brian, very much on the clean electricity side, um, but oh, also Julie focusing and on... <laughs> yes, thanks, Julie and Brian. Couldn't have done any of this without you. Uh, but also our, our um, sort of nascent but fast uh, expanding CCS teams as well, really brought their piece to the party as well. So um, lots of colleagues, as, as ever with these broader topics, it's a real team effort here at Woodmax. So... That's been um, a delight to, to to work on. Also, a lot of our clients, you know, we've road tested these ideas with a lot of our clients and um, hopefully sort of rounded off some of the rough edges through those conversations <laughs> as well. I won't name the, the clients individually, but, um, uh, you know, I know that particularly the the seven majors, you know, a lot of their thinking is kind of aligned with this sort of view of where the upstream is going to go. Um, you know, into the 2030s and, and beyond. So, you know, really have to acknowledge that uh, those conversations, and there have been many over, over a long period of time, um, really helped shape our thinking as well. Uh,
0: and finally, where can listeners learn more about the work you and the broader team are doing at Woodmac?
1: Well, the obvious place to go, of course, is woodmac.com slash horizons, where you can get a copy of this particular report. But, uh, you know, obviously on that website, you'll find uh, links to all of the stuff that we're doing right across all of the different parts of energy at, uh, at Woodmac.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, and I'm looking forward to your next Horizons piece already.
1: Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure.
0: Over 90% of the world's oil and gas supply is concentrated in around 50 traditional super basins. 75% of these resources are in just 10 basins, as we learned today. As the world looks to decarbonize, this legacy infrastructure risks being left behind low cost and low carbon resources must become the future of oil and gas. To do this, traditional basins will need to evolve into energy basins. These will use renewables and CO2 capture to improve sustainability. At some point, be it by 2030 or by 2050, the upstream oil and gas industry will move into a phase of terminal decline. As demand fades, companies do not wanna be caught on the wrong side of the transition. Thank you for joining us in this edition of the Horizons Podcast. I'm Dr. Liz Dennett. We'll see you on the next episode. Stay right here though, because now we're gonna leave you with the final word from our Chief Research Analyst, Simon Flowers.
2: Thanks Liz, I'm Simon Flowers, Chief Analyst at Wood Mackenzie. At the end of each Horizons podcast, I like to give my final thoughts on this month's topic, so here they are. We still need oil and gas and will do for decades, but we also need renewables and carbon capture and storage. What we've learned today is that some of the biggest oil and gas producing basins don't have to face withering away as demand inevitably falls with the transition. Some can build for the future with carbon capture and storage and also commercialize their renewable resource. Three things really stand out for me. First, the opportunity for the best placed oil and gas basins to capture enormous economies of scale and deliver low-cost, low-carbon energy well into the future. Second, These basins can attract sustained investment for decades, which is good news for economies that today are very dependent on oil and gas. Third, developing the energy in this way can provide tremendous careers for geoscience and engineering communities. Thanks for listening to this, the July edition of Horizons. Thanks to Liz and Andy Latham for joining us and exploring our forecast for the super energy basins of the future. You can find the report and the podcast on our website at woodmac.com forward slash horizons and stream the show wherever you get your podcasts join us in a couple of weeks when we'll explore further the biofuels of the future see you next time